Welcome to So-and-So, brought to you by Bernina, made to create. I'm Meg, and you're about to enjoy a casual conversation with a special member of the Soist community. A conversation about how they got started, what inspires them, what excites them, and their connection to this community. Our guest today is Julaine Sullivan, the owner of All Dressed Up Costumes, where they create items for theatrical productions, themed weddings, period gowns and suits, mascots, special events, haunted houses, and television and film. Julaine founded All Dressed Up 31 years ago, and now they inhabit more than 10,000 square feet containing all of the items they've created. Julaine began sewing in middle school as a requirement in her home ec class. She expanded this skill in high school when after winning a part in a school play, she made all of her own costumes. The word of her sewing talent spread, and soon others were asking her to make costumes for them as well. Eventually, this hobby became a career when she was creating costumes for entire productions. She went on to found all dressed up costumes and has never looked back. She calls all of this a hobby that got out of control. Julaine, welcome to So and So. Oh, thank you, Meg. And thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. There's there's so much we get to cover today, but I have to ask you, a hobby that got out of control. I love that. Um, why do you call it that? Um, because that's exactly what it was. Um, theater to me, I did study theater in college, but I didn't study it as um, my primary focus. Um, I wanted to do marketing and communications. So... I continued to do theater, um, community theater projects, and most community theaters don't have a whole lot of um, revenue, so they can't afford to rent um, entire collections of costumes for production, so I would make my own, of course, and that also was a hobby. And over time, I began to collect so many costumes, I couldn't get my car in my garage because it was nothing but dresser drawers full of costumes and racks that we'd hung from the ceiling and costumes hanging from the ceiling. But it's true. People would say, well, why don't you make all the costumes for a show? And then word would get out that I was doing that and some high schools would call me. I started doing all of the costumes for North Central College some 30 years ago. (laughs) Um, Actually, uh, longer than that. Um, I've been doing costumes at North Central College on and off for, oh, probably five years. And, And you do teach classes there as well. Yes, I teach their stage makeup class, um, which is a fabulous, fun class because it, it's the special effects makeup. It's how to create old age, how to create characters, a little bit of the glamour. But um, so I teach that. So theater is theater was always a hobby, and I always had a full time job. Um, just before we went on the podcast, I was talking about how I had become a sales manager for a lighting company. I had kind of traversed off into this electrical <laughs> universe for a while. But 30 years ago, I had a full-time job selling um, theatrical lighting and video lighting systems. But I also took over a a theatrical costume company that was in Batavia, changed its name to All Dressed Up, and kind of ran parallel universes. I had my full-time job traveling and selling entertainment lighting, but then I was doing costumes for local community theaters and high schools through the costume shop that I had purchased. And at that point, it was about maybe 3,500 square feet, and now we're up to 10,000 square feet. So we've grown a lot in the last 
oh, however many years. And it was 12 years ago that I finally left working full time in other industries and said, I'm focusing in on, well, actually, it's longer than that now. I guess it was about 15 years that I've been doing this full time, just doing the costume work only. Now, uh, let's, let's focus on the task of costuming for an entire production, um, which seems like, like an incredible task. So what serves as your inspiration? Would you take us through that process? Okay, so the inspiration can come from a lot of different sources. But when you're working to design and build costumes for an entire production, the story is the star. So the first thing that we have to do is read the play. That's the story. And we'll read it to get an understanding of what the story is about. When does it take place? What is the themes of the, the play that we're going to do? Then we'll read it again to really dive into who are the individual characters and what are their personalities, and what direction we're going to go. And once we have a good understanding, we get together with the production team. So it's the director who really sets the tone and temperament of the show to begin with that everyone else kind of bounces off of. Um, the scenic designer will create a set that is of the appropriate time period and the appropriate theme. Part of that is choosing colors. Colors are so important. Colors will tell you if it's a comedy or if it's a tragedy, if it's a high-paced farce or if it's an operatic uh, drama. Um, so we work with a color palette and we work with textures. But once the set designer and the designer and the costume designer have all kind of worked together to say, this is the direction we're going, this is the color palette that we're going. Then we all go off in our own individual directions to design the show. From there, we know what is the time period. So what is the silhouette of the costumes that we are going to be designing? Is it going to be a Regency period, Jane Austen kind of time period? Will it be an Elizabethan time period? Uh, French Restoration, all those silhouettes are very different when you work on that. If it's a contemporary, is it 50s with the tight waist and the full skirts um, or the pencil skirts that are, are tight? One of the things that I, I talk to my um, interns about or people that I'm working with, at, even at the college as I'm designing costumes and I've got a costume crew there, is finding that color palette and at any given point in time, I want to be able to take a snapshot of what's on that stage and have it look like a portrait where all the colors and all the textures are working together. And we can use colors and textures also to define focus. So inspiration then can come from anywhere. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream, I think, is a, a fabulous production that um, it has royals, it has common people, it has fairies, so fantasy. It has this broad stroke of all different types of characters that we can design for. So that lets us get creative. Now, the director may say, I want to do this in more of a dark, moody, earthy tone. Okay, well, then we have to look at those fairies and the creation of them and, and say, all right, let's draw from the forest. Let's use the textures of the trees and the leaves and the color palette of the trees and the leaves to create those costumes. Um, he may say, I want to just do it totally mythical and fantasy, and at which point we could go, oh, well, then we can add some glitter and sparkle and make it be that sort of ethereal fairies in the forest. Mm -hmm. So, again, inspiration can come from some, so many different places. I actually saw a production of Midsummer Night's Dream recently at the Globe Theatre in London, and the fairies all look like piñatas. Seriously look like piñatas. Just large swaths of um, wide 
fringe that look like the paper fringe that you would see on the pinatas with the bands of color going around their legs and their, their torsos and their arms. And it was, it was quite an interesting um, production and it was very visually stimulating. And obviously the director let that costume designer just go crazy. Um, so music will also set a tone for that inspiration. For example, there's a, a musical called The Little Night Music, and most of the music is a waltz um, tempo music, which is a regal elegance, and it is set in the turn of the century, so it allows you to design these beautiful ball gowns of that time period. You go to a hairspray, and it's a much more upbeat 1960s style, and it, the music will also set a tone of brighter colors and brighter patterns, and we're going to do some swing dancing, so you need skirts that have more movement to them. So inspiration comes from so many different places. So in, in doing all of this, what's the hardest part of your work? Oh, um, I think the hardest part of my work as a costume designer, and I think this is true in almost any industry, is communication. Um, you have to know exactly what the director is wanting. So that communication back and forth, making sure your understanding is, is imperative. Um, secondly, if I design something and I sketch it out and I just turn it over to a soloist um, to say this is what I want it to look like, communicating that to that other technician, mm -hmm. you have to make sure they understand exactly what you're looking for. And that comes partly in the design and the drawing and partly in how you're communicating with them. Um, speaking of a little night music, I once designed that show. There are three... Um, singers that, uh, women, there's a, actually a group of five vocalists that sing together, they kind of act like a narrator that holds the production together. And I wanted them in these absolutely beautiful, uh, deep, royal blue ball gowns with gorgeous black sequity trim, beaded trim on them. And I drew the pictures and I took a flight out of town uh, for one of the business trips uh, to Omaha, which we were also talking about. And cross my fingers that she would understand what was in those drawings. I came back and they were perfect. They were absolutely perfect. But one of the things that was important with that is I actually have worked with that seamstress before. So I knew exactly what her talent and capability and vision was. And in drawing the sketch, I made sure that as I drew the sketch, I drew where the seams were. And that's really critical. I've worked with designers who are really talented. And they come up with these brilliant sketches. And you look at them and go, all right, now how do I engineer that? <laughs> Where do you want the seams to be? Where do you want the openings to be? You're not showing me that there's any darts or princess lines to accommodate a bus line. <sighs> I need more information. So I think that is really the hardest part is communicating what your expectations are or what is expected from you, from a director and the rest of the design team. Julianne, you've, you've started to talk about the process of, of how you put these costumes together. And I've heard you um, say that sewing for the stage is quite different from sewing a, a dress to wear every day. You call it building a costume. Uh, and I found this fascinating. Tell us more about the differences. Um, okay, so when we are building a costume for theater, we need to have strength in the seams and strength in the fabric because the costumes will be worn every day, sometimes twice a day, um, sometimes quick changes on and off, and they might be worn a couple of times in any given production. So there's a lot of stress on the seams, 
the the closures, the fabrics themselves, if they're um, you know a finer fabric. So what we do in theater, as opposed to if you build a dress, you cut out your pattern, you sew the seams together, you put in your zipper, it's lovely. We have to take an additional step. So each pattern piece that we cut out is also flat lined with a muslin fabric. Um, and then that is all surged together so that there is a strength to that specific piece of the pattern. And then that begins to be sewn together. So there's more layers to it, although it may look like it's a beautiful silk dress on stage, it may have a flat lining in it. There are exceptions to that, of course, where you have a beautiful silk dress, it needs to float on stage, it's a 1920s or 30s piece, she's dancing in it, it needs to flutter, you can't flatline that. Oftentimes then, several of the same dress will have to be made so that the actress has a backup or as she's wearing it, it can go to the cleaning process and she's got a backup to wear. But we have to build them for that, that, that strength of, you know, a wardrobe person zipping it down and getting her out of it and uh, getting her into the next one very quickly. Dance moves on stage can be very strenuous as well, which will put stress on those seams that we don't normally put stress on if we're just wearing a, a, a garment that we've made for ourselves. Um, so... That's why we call it building, because there's actually more that goes into it. Same thing with zippers. Um, we typically will use a little bit heavier weight zipper so that it will like uh, last longer uh, during the course of a six-month or a year-and-a-half production run. Or in a rental stock, for example, although a high school or a community theater may only put their show on for a couple of weekends, it's, it's maybe four performances, it might be 12 performances, it comes back into the rental stock, it goes through the cleaning process, and it will be worn again. And we want it to last years so that we can get the return on the investment of the storage and the, the creation of that specific costume. I think you've given us a new um, appreciation for what you do. <laughs> it's, it's much more than, than we see from, from sitting in the audience. Mm -hmm. now, now, in our introduction, I mentioned all the different things you've created items for, the theater themed weddings, period gowns and suits, mascots, special events. I love the haunted houses. <laughs> and of course, TV and film. Right. Um, what are some of your favorite costumes you've created and, and why? Oh, my goodness. Over the years, there are so many that I have made. I think I personally like pretty things. So when you ask me what my favorites are, they are the gorgeous ball gowns. They are the beautiful, elaborate French restoration dresses. Those are the things that I, I love to make. Um, specifically, one that comes to mind, uh, several years ago, I made a Regency ball gown for a woman who is a part of the Jane Austen Society. She was going to be seated at the head table for that particular ball that year. Um, next to whoever is the president of the organization or someone who is very important within the organization. And we went shopping together and we picked out this absolute lush, beautiful cream and gold fabric. And we found some extraordinary trim that just was inset with gold and rhinestones. And we bought lots of it. And we made this extraordinary, beautiful ball gown with a fabulous long train on it and all of the beautiful 
embellishments. Um, and, and when I watched Bridgerton, which is very popular on Netflix right now, which is of that sort of fantasy Regency period, um, when the women were presented at court to the queen, it was like that reminded me of the dress that I made for that particular event. Um, I think some other things, I've made some dresses for some operas. Uh, again, because you can get so elaborate with that, um, that's what makes me happy when I can add embellishments and ruffles and you know, create something that's extraordinarily beautiful that we don't necessarily get to wear now <laughs> that I would love to wear now. <laughs> I think I was born in the wrong century. <laughs> yeah. How long does it take you on average to create a costume? That uh, just depends on the costume, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. If we're making, you know, a little tent dress from the 1960s for a production of Hairspray, uh, from start to finish, not counting the fabric shopping time, you know, you could whip that thing out in six hours, maybe. But if you're working on that beautiful ball gown, that was easily, I would say I probably had 60 hours into that particular dress. And I made that one myself from start to finish. Um with all the embellishments and everything that went with it, not including the shopping for the fabric. So it really depends um, on what I'm making. And it also depends on if we're fabricating something. Um, mm -hmm. For example, mascots that we have to fabricate. One of my favorite projects that I most recently did, um, the movie Frozen was turned into a stage play on Broadway by the Disney company. And that became a very popular show for a lot of the middle schools and some of the community theaters because it gave lots of roles. The children all knew it and loved it, and we knew they would sell tickets. On Broadway, the character Olaf, which is the snowman, um, was played by a human that carried a half-sized puppet with him. So it was like a, a full snowman that was a puppet that he manipulated on stage as he walked around and sang the song and the puppet's mouth would move and the little legs would dance. And um, I created an Olaf puppet. <laughs> so now it's a matter of, all right, I'm doing a little bit of sewing, but I'm also doing a whole lot of working with foam and PVC pipe and metal and <laughs> trying to create this puppet that is half of a life-sized human that can now walk on stage with a human manipulating it so he can look like he's singing and dancing on stage. It was fun. It was a challenge, but it was fun. And you just start from scratch. I'm, I'm taking it there's no um, instruction book on how to do this. You just need to dream it and then buy the stuff. And you might be fabric shopping on, on one minute and uh, at a hardware store the next, uh, buying PVC. <laughs> yes, I spend a lot of time in hardware stores, actually, because there are a lot of crazy things that we make that we need bizarre things that we can find at the hardware store. So the Olaf puppet, obviously, it was the PVC um, and the PVC pipe glue, foam, special glue that is used for foam, uh, and then the materials that I sewed together. But literally, it was just watching videos of the Broadway show over and over and over again and watching, well, how is he moving on stage? And do I have the budget to create the elaborateness of the puppet that was made for Broadway? No, I don't. <laughs> because mm -hmm. that puppet had eyes that moved and, you know, the mouth would move with a little 
uh, trigger mechanism that the guy held in his hand. He didn't have to put his hand up into the puppet. We don't have the wherewithal budget-wise to create that because our customers are not going to be able to afford that puppet that Broadway can't afford to pay for. Um, but so watching it, I went, all right, this is what I need to do to create this. And then I watched a YouTube on how just random, like the Muppet puppets are made and manipulated. And I went, all right, okay, I can now take what I've learned from watching those and now go back and recreate Olaf. And literally, you don't have a pattern for it. So you are shaping his head and his like little mouth section out of the foam and you're just cutting it like you're cutting darts and you're gluing that together rather than sewing that together and uh, crafting an Olaf puppet and he turned out adorable. <laughs> you know, we sewed his nose and stuffed it with fiber fill and then attached that onto his face and uh, we used giant googly eyes and made little eyelids over it but it was... Uh, it was quite a challenge, but I, I felt so accomplished when I got him done. You know, I think you've given us a new appreciation for the hand-eye coordination uh, of the individual actor who plays these parts, having to sing, walk, and move mouths and googly eyes and, and everything else. <laughs> it, it is extraordinary. that Those are actual trained puppeteers or actors who go and learn puppeteering in order to play those roles on Broadway. Um, there is a fabulous show that was on Broadway or off Broadway. It was called Avenue Q and it literally is puppets. And so there's adults dressed in costumes with hand puppets and the puppets are singing. And every one of those talented actors had to learn how to be a puppeteer to craft that show on, on stage. Broadway gets very creative. Sometimes I, I go, oh, really? <laughs> like The Lion King, absolutely a beautiful production, but you've got these extraordinary headpieces and costuming, and it takes costuming to an entire different level. It takes it out of, oh, I'm going to build or sew a costume to, oh, now I have to fabricate this giant lion's head that's up on top of an actor's head and a harness that suspends it on top of his head. It, it, it takes it into a prop um, aspect or almost a scene design aspect that has to tie back into the costume design. Always a challenge. Always a challenge, yes. Now, I, I want to go back to something that, that I've heard you say that I, I find very interesting. You said that you've heard many people say they can't sew, but you don't believe that they can't. It's just that they attempted to learn on an inexpensive machine. Yes. So tell us more about this and how the right machine can make such a difference. Oh, I think anybody who sews a lot will understand that. I have had young students that um, will come into the shop that want to do costuming or want to learn costuming or even friends that go, oh my God, I don't know how you sew. You're so good at it. Well, you could be good at it as well. It's a literally a matter of learning on the right sewing machine. I think that I was lucky in that I had a home ec class. And within that class, we had quality machines to begin with. But I have seen people that will either pick up a used machine, you know, that's for sale at a garage sale or online, or they'll go and they'll buy the most inexpensive machine possible at their local um, fabric store. And what happens is the machines, you get what you pay for. And I don't want to put down any machine at all. If you can sew on one of those, great. 
But what happens is the tensions don't hold as well. Um, the quality of the stitches won't survive, you know, people working with them. So what happens is, you know, when you're sewing and your bobbin thread just gets tangled up underneath, it is one of the most frustrating things in the world. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That will happen on the lesser quality, inexpensive machines. At one point at North Central College, I had purchased a really good machine for them so that we would just have one on site so that whenever I was over there doing any work for them, I could have a machine to do a quick alteration or a quick repair on site during the run of a show. Well, someone walked away with that sewing machine and I went, you know oh, what, I've got, to, I've got to find a replacement. It's not here. I, I'm just going to run over to the local fabric store and pick up whatever they've got. And I bought a $99 machine and I brought it back. And within 15 minutes, I, I was yelling at my sewing machine. You know how we all do that. Oh, indeed. <laughs> because because it, the tension would not hold. And it didn't matter what I did to you know, correct the bobbin tension or correct the tension at the top of the machine, re-threading the machine, changing out the needles. It just was such a struggle. And I've seen that happen with other people. One, a gal who worked for me uh, years ago that also I had met at the college came in with a little machine that had a little handle on it. And she said, well, I got this for Christmas. And I went, have you tried it? <laughs> <laughs> and she wanted to learn to sew. She is a wonderful seamstress right now. Sewist, I do love that word. Um, but what I did is I took one of the better machines that we had in the shop. And we have so many of them. And I said, this is my gift to you take this machine home with you and sew on it. And she came back the next day and she goes, oh my God, I can sew. Of course you can sew. It's not you, it's the equipment. And I liken that to carpenters. Um, if carpenters have the right hammer and the right wrench and the right set of drills and the, the, the best drill possible, they get their job done and they get it done efficiently and effectively. If they're trying to work with a lightweight hammer and a hand screw, a screwdriver, they're going to have problems. They're going to struggle with it. They may not be able to do the job correctly and certainly not efficiently. And that's the same thing with us. The equipment makes our jobs easier and makes us better at our jobs. So, yes. So what I'm hearing you say is um, when you are buying a machine, invest in the best machine that you can afford. Exactly. And there are good quality machines out there that are not going to break the bank. You know, I own two Berninas. I love my Berninas, by the way. And I, I, I don't know what the range of Berninas are anymore. Um, but mm -hmm. I invested in a good Bernina as soon as I could afford a good Bernina. <laughs> Before that, my parents bought me a sewing machine when I was in high school. And it was my sophomore year, and I was making all the costumes for that production that I got cast in. That machine lasted me all the way through... Um, I was in my mid-30s before I finally said, okay, it needs an overhaul. And I was sewing costumes at North Central College, and literally this is 15 years later, and I'm picking out some of the, the dust that had come off the red velvet of the very first costume I had sewn on that machine. Oh my. It was like, wow. Um, but it was one of those old, heavy-duty metal machines that just was a better quality, so... Invest in what you can invest in. Spend as much as you can to get a good machine if you're serious about sewing. Or at least borrow someone who has a good machine to know that this is something that you will enjoy and then go invest the money in something good. 
make that happen. In going along in recommendations here, um, in this time of quarantine, we have welcomed many, many people to our SOAST community mm-hmm. um, who are, are new to this uh, and some who have been sewing for a long time. And I'm sure they'd like to know a little bit more about the process and the tools and techniques you use to learn a little bit from all your years of experience. Are there some things you can share with us? Yeah, that's a wide open question, isn't it? We have hours for this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, certainly in terms of what we do and what I was explaining in building a costume, having a serger is pretty important because taking those pattern pieces, flatlining them with muslin, the best way to do that is to actually serge all of the edges around that pattern piece before you sew it in. It accomplishes a couple of things. Certainly, it keeps the seams from fraying on the inside, which does help the costume last longer, but it also adds that strength to the costume. I think the other thing in terms of using that serger and how we build it, costumes are constantly being let out and taken back in. So a costume that we build, for example, for Hello Dolly, beautiful red dress that everybody expects for Dolly to wear. She cascades down the stairs at Harmonia Gardens. Actresses come in all different sizes in our rental world. We have to be prepared to say, oh, this is a dress that would fit someone with a 36-inch bust and a 30-inch waist. Your actor is a bit larger than that. Fine. Let's let that out. Sometimes we have to rebuild it in order to suit a different size. But um, so that's part of what we do as well. So we build the costume originally. And as we're taking it in and letting it out, we have to adjust the stitch length. So stitch length, when you're sewing a, a normal dress, you might put it on a two. You want to make sure that it's secure. Initially, that's what we will do as we build a costume. But as we begin to take it in and let it out, so that we can readily take it in and out without putting too much stress on the fabric through the stitch marks, we will extend that to a four. And that's for productions that are a one weekend or a two weekend run where we can do that, but that allows us to pull it back out again and resize it to what it originally was. So sergers are important. Obviously our sewing machines are important. Another machine that we have in the shop is an industrial hammer. Um, What the industrial hammer does is it creates a chain stitch. So we have a machine that will do that. And the purpose of that is to be able to pull hems in and out quickly. That is specifically important for men's pants. Um, Lots of men have the same waist, but men's legs are all a different length. And so we might want this suit on a gentleman whose legs are now two inches shorter than the guy who wore it last. And if we've used the industrial hammer, we can very easily pull that hem out, put another one in quickly and efficiently without putting a lot of stress on the actual fabric and keeping it as a blind hem as well. Blind hems are great, but they add more stitches than that chain stitch will. So that is an important tool that we have in our shop. Um, Irons. Oh my goodness. Irons are critical to any sewist. And I, I... I I think that's imperative no matter what sort of um, part of sewing, whether it's quilting or dressmaking or crafting or costuming, making sure that you are using that iron to press open your seams, um, to make sure that everything is, is 
perfectly open that way so that when you're sewing your seams match um, that to me is one of the most critical pieces of equipment that I have in my personal sew shop here at the shop um, other things oh well of course we have a whole craft section so we have every type of adhesive imaginable from um, you know the gorilla glues and the hot glue guns and the foam glue that goes in the hot glue to the tack foam for foam to barge which is used for shoemaking, but we also use it to glue um, different types of foams together. Grommet uh, machines, grommet presses. Uh, when we're building uh, gowns from the Elizabethan period, French Restoration period, having the grommet maker to create the lace-up backs for corsets or dirndls becomes an important tool that we have in our shop. Oh, I'm trying to think of all the things we have. <laughs> um, I think that's a good place to start. Great scissors. Oh, my goodness. Let's just start there, shall we? A good pair of fabric scissors, critical, and you don't let anybody else use them for anything else. And even in my shop, I, I, I hate to say it, but we'll run in and go, oh, I need some scissors to cut this belt, this piece of cardboard, this piece of leather, this wire. Oh, hurt me wire cutters. <laughs> Let me go there. <laughs> Have some wire cutters so you're not ruining your good scissors. Um, because a lot of what we do in the millinery side, so in addition to making the costumes, we have to make the hats and the accessories that go with them. So in millinery, you're working with a lot of wires and feathers and um, that type of uh, buckram. And, and so we need to have the tools that we can use to create the hats as well. Um, blocking for hats we have those as well so that if a hat kind of loses its shape we can steam it back into shape i wish we had more of those than we do for the various sizes and various shapes but those are tools that we have um just hat forms and head forms to hold projects as we're working dress forms yes <laughs> anyone who is making fashion or uh, costuming needs to have dress forms so that in addition to patterning, you can do the draping of costumes as well. And some costumes require draping as opposed to engineering a pattern and, and flatlining it, at which point you need to have a really good quality dress form. We have several in lots of different sizes um, to go through. So, so much. <laughs> You know, this this is an awesome behind-the-scenes look at it's something that we all experience in the audience but have no idea what, what goes into creating what we're seeing there on stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think you have you may have opened up the, the door for some of our, our sewists to begin investigating this new craft, this new skill of costuming. I do want to conclude, Julaine, today with a question I ask all of our guests at the end of the show. What didn't I ask you that you wish I had? Oh, I don't know that there's anything I, I feel that you've missed. Because um, you've asked more than I thought about, actually, which was made this kind of fun. Sure. I, think, I think the only thing that I would suggest is if someone is looking to go into costuming. And there's so many different aspects of costuming. It's not just costuming for theater, which is our primary focus, but we also do costuming for cosplay. Um, cosplay is a huge industry um, mm -hmm. where people dress up as some of their favorite either um, comic book characters or um, hero-type characters. It, it's a, an incredible 
crazy world. Um, and I know several sewists that have home uh, studios where they, they do this primarily for themselves and they just recreate all kinds of these different characters that they want to be. Um, they recreate the video game characters like the Fortnite mm -hmm. characters or Minecraft characters and they go to these conventions and they compete in uh, the costume design, costume construction, creativity of how they've morphed a costume into something else or created it for themselves. So that's an entire another area that in terms of costuming, it's a, a niche that we do a little bit of, but there are there are other people that just specialize in that. And uh, I, I think what they do is absolutely extraordinary because in addition to sewing, they are also doing a lot of fabricating and some of them are working with fiberglass <laughs> and things that, okay, mm -hmm. goes a little bit farther um, outside of the area of sewing itself. But I think that that is an extraordinary um the interesting universe. And we, we have been called upon to do that for people in the past. Um, certainly anyone can walk into the shop and say, I would like to have this. Um, as you mentioned, we've, we've done some weddings. So if somebody wants to have a French restoration wedding or a Victorian wedding or even a Halloween wedding, and they come in with an idea, we have created not just the bride's gowns, but um, the entire wedding party of um, attire from anything Elizabethan to French Restoration. Um, and it, it becomes such a fun fantasy wedding. Um, so we enjoy doing that area as well. Um, and then building the mascots. That's more of the fabricating. We're building a, maybe a fur body, but we're actually building a head. And we do a little bit of maintenance on that. We are um, sponsors of the... Uh, the little hockey team that's here in Batavia. It's a, uh, it's a, I don't know what league. It's not like the Blackhawks or a certain league. I don't know enough about hockey, but it's a, a minor league. It's a minor league team. And they have this fabulous mascot. And we are constantly either doing minor repairs to him. We recently repaired his feet because uh, that takes a lot of wear and tear. But we've created costumes for him as well. And so that takes a whole different world because the size and shape of the head and you know making him crowns and safari hats and you know various things for various themed activities that they have so there's so many different areas um within costuming you know and a thought that i had the other day as, as we were talking because I, I saw that there's quilting that you know um is a part of this this so-and-so there is a show that is called seven brides for seven brothers and within that production the seven girls show up on this farm out in the middle of nowhere to be married to the seven brothers and the girls of course want to be pretty so they grab the quilts off the beds and they turn them into their party dresses and i was actually thinking about that and how we have actually incorporated quilting into the costume world where we have created the fabric ourselves by quilting it together i would never in a million years take a quilt and cut it up and put it into a costume mm -hmm. oh i i would cry i would absolutely cry if i ever saw anybody do that because <laughs> uh, i know what it takes to make a quilt that is a skill that is just extraordinary but we will then sew the fabrics together in a quilting pattern and then create our fabric that we turn into the dress so i was thinking yeah okay we use a little bit of quilting talent there as well um we we have also done, and this is some things that maybe sewists can do, we have created um, recreation costumes for museums. And we're actually working on some right now. 
uh, I'll have to be delivering some samples off uh, this afternoon. But um, I built a bunch of costumes that are in a museum in Sitka, Alaska. So it was like an 1890s ball gown of a Russian princess that I had to replicate. The prince's um, uh, military uniform, his dress uniform, uh, we replicated a, a tinglet woven um, reed skirt. So there was a whole lot of things that we created that I have not gotten pictures of yet since it went up to the, the museum. And every once in a while, I go and see if the museum is even open yet because uh, it was a whole new display. So there's a lot of different elements. So it's not, oh, I've created a costume out of my brain and fantasy. It's here's a picture and you need to replicate it and make it exactly what this historical with historical accuracy. And that was a another fabulously fun project that I got to work on. There were five costumes that we sent up to the museum. You know, there's so many facets to what you do, Julian. Yes. And, and I have to, to thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. So much fun learning about all that you do. Uh, and I just want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for having me. It was, it was fun. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners would like to reach out to you to, for more conversation or to engage you on, on learning some more from you. What's the best way for them to do so? Of course. Um, the name of the costume shop is All Dressed Up Costumes. It's in Batavia, Illinois. Um, we do have a website, which is alldressedupcostumes.com. You can email us at info at alldressedupcostumes.com. Our phone number at the shop is 630-879-5130. We also have a Facebook page, which is All Dressed Up Costumes. Uh, So you could like us on Facebook and send questions through that means as well. Um, We do have an Instagram as well, but that's a little bit harder to communicate back and forth. That's great to look at pictures, but not necessarily to have an in-depth conversation. So either call the shop, send us an email. We're not open uh, regular hours right now because of COVID. We are open by appointment. But if you want to come in and just look at 10,000 square feet of costumes, you are welcome to do that. Just give us a call and let us know when you want to come over. Perfect. And when you do reach out to Julaine, make sure you tell her that uh, you heard her here on so-and-so. Thank you again. And and we really appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks, Meg. Well, there you have it. Another story about someone just like you. Someone for whom sewing and quilting is so much more than a hobby. It's a way of life, a connection to something bigger. If you know someone you think has an outstanding story, a story that should be shared on this podcast, please drop me a note to megoodman at theflintrock.com and put You Should Hear Their Story in the subject line. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and visit our website, soandsopodcast.com, for more information about today's and all of our guests. That's S-E-W-A-N-D-S-O podcast. And finally, I want to thank Bernina for making this program possible. I'm Meg, and I look forward to you joining us next time on So-and-So, 